0: Hello, Spacers. It's Jay here. We're taking a short break for the month of July, and we'll be back with the regular scheduled content. But until then, to tide you over, here's an episode of Janky to the Max, our other podcast that we produce. Uh, This episode, we talk to the CEO of a weather satellite company. So enjoy, and see you in September. Later, Spacers. All right, I'm back. Turns out I forgot a few things. I actually meant... August, not September. quarantine's really messing up my schedule. Second thing, uh, quick warning this episode has terrible audio. I forgot how, uh, how far we've progressed and uh, uh, audio quality has uh, definitely improved as you can as you will see. So uh, keep that in mind. Um, see you in August. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Janky to the Max, a podcast where we talk about fascinating projects and the interesting creators who create them. Today on the show, we have Patrick, who is a co-founder of CareWeather, which is a, a startup that uses small satellites to, uh, to take in weather data. Uh, before we get to that, a few things. First off, if you are listening... On Spotify or PocketCast, uh, we live stream all these episodes in the Jenky DIY server, so make sure to join that. Uh, an important event that's coming up as well is Jamcraft, which is hosted by uh, Jack. Um, it's uh, going to be a 10-day game jam from April 10th to April 20th. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be involved in it. Uh, so if you're into, into that thing, definitely sign up. And with me, last but definitely not least, is my fantastic co-host Glavin. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Uh, and, uh, welcome, Patrick, to to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Be yeah.
0: Uh, so tell tell us what you do. Uh, tell us about your startup.
1: Yeah. So we're building small satellites to measure wind over the ocean more frequently than it's currently measured. Currently. Uh, scientists rely on mappings of winds that uh, are refreshed about twice a day, and we're working towards the National Science Foundation or the National Academy of Sciences' goals to refresh wind measurements every hour. Wow, that's impressive.
2: What kind of uh, what benefit is there from having data refreshed that quickly versus what it is currently?
1: There's a lot of processes that uh, scientists can't observe in anywhere close enough to real time to model them. So the really classic example is hurricanes, right? As you can imagine, oh, they yeah. change a lot faster than a couple times a day.
0: Hmm. And right.
1: right now, our ability to model how those hurricanes work, how they change over time, is pretty limited because we can't observe it.
0: Oh, Amazing. Cool. Um, so what, where are you at now in like the whole process? Have you have you launched some satellites? Do you have some orbiting? Are you in kind of like the the beginnings of it, raising capital, uh, in yeah, between? We're
1: pretty, we're pretty early stage. We uh we worked on a satellite project before at the university where me and my teammate met and the it's also the university we're partnering with. And uh, we're we've been working on Taking lessons from that and trying to make our satellite, our underlying satellite platform, a lot better, mm-hmm. so that we support the radar that we need to measure wind. Okay, and we're cool. also working on raising, but that's sort of a secondary. It's it's not a top priority right now, right? You know, just because, you know, as as long as we're not doing anything crazy in terms of costs, we're able to get pretty far on a small amount of capital.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because your your biggest overhead will be. Launching the satellites and, and the actual parts, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And the, so obviously, satellite launch is really expensive. Mm-hmm. So we've been thinking a lot lately about how do we like approximate launch in or approximate operation in space mm-hmm. through really cheap testing as best we can. Mm-hmm. Um, we've come up with a lot of good ideas there.
0: Yeah, a lot, lot. On the last episode, we talked to Applied Ion, who is uh, I'm sure you know of him. Um, <clears throat> so he was telling us about some of the the crazy expenses for just basic small sat parts. Uh, so how are you? How are you dealing with that? Like, is is there a way you like model it, like simulate um, like the satellite uh, before you actually? Getting parts in hand and, and assembling it, or do you actually just have to get the parts and be like, "Oh, rip! I, I just <laughs> blew a ten thousand dollar circuit board." Like, okay, what's your what's your approach?
1: Um, so there's there's two there's a spectrum of approaches here, and they really have to do with your intended volume. Um, so if you're planning on a larger constellation of satellites. You, and you're flying in a lower orbit, you can get away with um, lower costs. So Planet has demonstrated this really well. Um, are, are you familiar with Planet? I'll just give a brief. Right giving yeah. Of that. yeah, so Planet, Planet is a venture-funded uh, satellite company that does optical visual imaging. And they set out like six or seven years ago with the mission to... Uh, basically create a Google Maps image of the entire Earth every day so that you could track changes of all kinds of things. Whoa, And wow. uh, So it takes about, uh, I don't know the exact number, it's like 100 to 200 satellites to do that. And they're all three U-cubesats, so shoebox-sized. And uh, they, to keep costs down, they decided to um, opt for system-wide reliability across across the constellation, sort of network reliability instead of reliability in an individual satellite. Um, and they've done really well with that. There's, it turns out that you know a lot of the heritage decisions, this is my opinion, a lot of the heritage, heritage decisions that we've made when it comes to what's best practice for space engineering were made a long time ago, and they're sort of made on like single uh, case studies of failure. And when you have a little bit more volume, you can sort of actually study what what is higher risk and how to make uh, what are what are reasonable trade-offs for reliability across the constellation. So generally there's not really a s for us, there's not really a strong reason to design in a way or to use parts that are extremely expensive.
0: Okay.
1: So like so, you talk about what Go ahead. Yeah. Oh
0: oh no. So so you your goal is to have just like a lot of them. And that way, you know, if one fails or something, it's not a big deal because, you know, you can easily replace it instead of having to have just a few modules that are really expensive.
1: Yeah, and eventually you want to move into more reliability. But if you're planning on iterating one satellite after another and you're doing it in a low enough orbit that you're not creating debris, um, then, yeah, so if you're planning on iterating, then you can work up to that reliability that you would get with really expensive... Parts off the bat, mm-hmm. um, using parts that are a lot more, a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm.
0: So I take it. Do you, are you do you have any like thrusters on board, like iron cannons and such, which are like we were talking about last last episode? Or since it, you're you're not going to really worry about at least that's not a priority, um, you're you're just going to
1: forget that. Yeah, we're we're really interested in how do we um, how do we iterate. As quickly as possible, and continue to iterate to improve our system. Uh, we have this initial target of measuring wind, but I think, I think there's a lot of other parameters that we could measure that we could potentially integrate in the same satellite. Mm. So I sort of see the deorbit, the natural deorbit that happens to satellite as just a opportunity for um, doing end of life on older revisions and and launching something that's improved. Planned obsolescence. Yeah. Yep, but nature. <laughs> that's really <Okay>. cool. <laughs> uh, no, the cool. used thrusters eventually, um, especially the stuff. I think his name's Michael Edified Ion. Um, I, yeah, I, I I I don't know. And guy, um, I think the the stuff he's doing is awesome because we never would have considered thrusters before, but he brings he's bringing it down to the cost range where we really could, and that. That may allow us to be more responsible in the sense that um, we could maneuver if there was a potential uh, collision.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In orbit. Um, but right now, like if we're if we have low enough orbit, our life's low enough, and our uh, our size makes it so the risk of collision is also extremely low. So.
0: That's really cool. Well, so, so, how, how far oh, are you away from uh, from like a, a launch date? Do you think?
1: Um, you know, if we had money, this is where that discussion about like, how do we test on the ground? If we had raised already, um, we, we would have something that's ready to fly really soon here. Mm -hmm. Um, all has been to just iterate, to get to the point where we're iterating on the entire satellite as quickly as possible, Mm -hmm. um, preferably like close to weekly and, uh, so, like, we've been using... I don't know if you're familiar with JLCPCB's SMT assembly service.
0: No, I am not. <laughs>
1: but Electronics, it's fantastic. They um, they have a lineup of, like... This is a factory in Shenzhen, China. They have a lineup of, like, 40 pick-and-place machines, all stocked with a set of base components. And so, it's if you use those components, then... Um, they will put them on your circuit board basically for free. Wow. And so you can get assembled circuit. Like, we'll get, we'll get a CD-sized or a phone-sized circuit board um, for, and, like, a set of five assembled circuit boards for, like, 50 bucks. And we get them back in a week from when we sent them out. So um, there's some trade-offs you have to take. Like, like we said, trade-offs with cost and sort of uh, – mm-hmm with the rest of the system, but we're able to iterate really quickly because of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the lean model, right? I- iteration yeah. over uh, o- over quality. No, not not quality, but like iteration over, you know, spending just a lot of resources on one thing.
1: The trade-off is is uh, you can get reliability through um, lots of extra simulation and testing of the components of the system or you can get reliability by trying trying things out in an integrated system and testing them all together
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, so I just love the the fact that um we're, we're like able to use the, the the common maximum in silicon valley of failing faster and we can apply that to uh to space like i i think that that that's just incredible that, that we're at that point where, you know, we, we don't have to worry about, because I mean, when you send something to, you know, back in the day, you know, when you sent a satellite up, that was a huge deal and cost millions of dollars and you, you can't iterate that, but but now we can. And I think that's, that's so yeah, important. Yeah, we're getting
1: there. Yeah. And, and we're, I feel like we're just on the cusp, especially with hardware we're like the tools are getting better, but they're still, there's still a long way off from, where software tooling is. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. yeah. So my, my brother is a full cycle engineer. Um, Both of my brothers are full cycle engineers at their startup. And so, you know, I'm always envious of them because they're, they're creating and deploying new iterations on their system. um, Like multiple times a day, if not multiple Mm -hmm. times an hour. (laughs) So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you can't do that quite yet, but it's, no. it's, it's, it's a lot better. Yeah, but if we can if we could do something like that weekly, that would be phenomenal.
0: Oh, yeah. Glavin, you had, to, you had to, it's, uh, hit us with one of those questions you, you had.
2: Uh, all right. So you mentioned earlier about how the current satellite tech for monitoring weather patterns is only refreshed twice a day. What is specifically limiting the current technology? to that two times a day limit? Is it just the number of satellites that are able to go over a specific patch each day, or is it something, uh, just the amount of processing required?
1: It's the number of satellites. If you think about it, to stay in orbit, satellites have to be going really fast, right? Uh So they can't really hover, unless they're in geostationary orbit, they can't really hover over any given area. And so to get more frequent measurement, You really just need more satellites. That makes sense.
2: And then what's some of the uh, highlights that you've had with, uh, like a lot of this stuff really requires a lot of capital to get things moving and get things rolling. What's some of the highlights you've had with trying to get an investor involved
1: in these space companies? Um, So we we're just barely making our foray into that. Um, I talked to... Utah investors a little bit, so Utah's where I'm located, Uh and the sense I got was that Utah's kind of not ready to invest in something ambitious like space, so, but we we have found um, some, we've made some friends in uh, the LA area, where it sounds like there's a quite a big community of space and hardware investment, so, um, for us, so, the, the best advice I've heard on when to raise or when to focus on raising is to uh, to wait as long as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And uh, we participated um, in some competitions at BYU, and we've gotten a little bit of capital there. And like I mentioned, our, our prototyping process is super cheap. So um, our goal right now is just to continue to develop the technology as much as we can um, with the funding that we have.
0: Yeah, that's, that's that's smart. I definitely agree with, with bootstrapping as as much as you can. So you can, helps you work out the kinks early on instead of waiting. For sure.
1: The one catch with that is um, I, like I said, I think testing at the system level is super powerful, especially if you want to iterate. And um, the best place to do that is in space. Uh, so that that was why we had started looking into investment. And we're sort of doing it on the side a little bit right now. Um, but it's not our main focus. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, so was, we really wanted to raise so we could start launching. But um, I think there may be ways that we can do really good testing uh, without raising capital. Mm-hmm. And if that lets us sort of... Continue to form our company in the ways that we want to without outside pressures. I think there's some value to that. So uh,
2: it sounds like you have a little bit of difficulty with like the, just getting people on board with this. What's something that you would like to be able to change or advocate in the public perception of space
1: companies? Um, can you ask? Can you rephrase that? Um, so basically, like just uh,
2: the <laughs> something that you'd like to be able to change or advocate <laughs> in the public perception of space companies. Uh, so, like, you kind of mentioned how it seemed to be really difficult to get funding. Like, Utah doesn't seem like it was really ready just yet. Is that something that you'd like to change, Bill? And how would you... What kind of... Uh, how would you like to be able to change that public perception of this, the ambition of going to space versus what we have right now, of more people kind of focused on Earth? Yeah, Do you,
1: so you mean public, not investor, just in general?
2: Just in general, yeah.
1: A really broad question. I think. I think generally I'd say... That anytime we're exploring the unknown,
0: uh-huh.
1: right, we're gonna find the things that we didn't know, we don't know. That uh, that could be really beneficial to us, right? I think we're experiencing this globally right now. How how badly do we all wish we had been more prepared for pandemics, right? Right. Mm-hmm we all wish that our, every government in the world had invested far more in, in uh, epidemiological research. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's two sides of this. There's, there's the enterprise side, and then there's the science side. Um, when it comes to space exploration and, like, government-funded space exploration, uh, where the government is doing it itself, I think, in large part, it's best if they stick to the science side. Um, and then incentivize enterprise to sort of provide the supporting infrastructure. And I think it's trending in that direction a lot. It's been a long, long time coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good goal to have. I like, I like to be able to see that continue to go like
2: especially with uh, just a lot of more companies getting involved outside of just you know government, like I've seen like uh, like SpaceX launching satellites oh. to the ISS, which is really cool. I really like able to see that, seeing a private company be able to do that instead of just, you know, only a government company. I oh, thought was pretty. Neat. Well,
0: and and, and since uh, I mean, if you encourage private enterprise, that means that um, they'll be a lot more resourceful and a lot less wasteful because, you know, there it's their, it's their bottom dollar. It's there to um, make money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you're just going to have more optimized systems, which is good news for everyone.
2: And it gets more people involved with actually
1: trying to get to space. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. Yeah, and unfortunately, we still sort of see see fights with this. There's there are people who fight for like the Artemis program to uh to to go the single source contractor route. Um, Wait, what is the Artemis program? Uh, it's NASA's current effort to re land a person on the moon. Hmm. So current presidential administration's pushing for them to land someone on the moon by twenty twenty four. Um anyway, there's there's there are some very large uh US aerospace companies that would really like all of that money to go to them. Uh, Um they're pushing for it to be sort of single sourced traditional contracting. But you know, the the reason one of the reasons we have such a renaissance in in space in commercial space is um due to some programs that NASA ran that incentivized commercial companies.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Um, the, commercial, the commercial cargo program and commercial crew programs were and are huge in how much they've in- helped SpaceX grow in mm-hmm. fact I, I mean I don't know this for sure but I, I think it's possible that SpaceX wouldn't have survived or definitely wouldn't be as strong as it is today without that partnership without yeah. that incentives and support from NASA so in general space like space is hard in some sense but there are really smart ways to explore it. There are cost-effective ways, mm-hmm. and sure. uh, I think any like it's getting to the point where anyone can take part. You know, right. I mean, you heard of, if you've heard of Kicksat? That's sort of the quintessential way for anyone to take part in sort of spacecraft themselves, because you have this oh. uh, Kicksat. To tell us more, then that sounds that sounds good. Yeah, so K- Kicksat um, is a project run by Zach Manchester. Uh, he's now a professor at Stanford, um, and he had support from NASA as he was doing this, but they uh, they took a 3U CubeSat, so shoebox size, and they filled it with like 100 little stamp-sized satellites, and they ran a Kickstarter, so anyone could sort of buy their own little satellite for like 1000 uh-huh. bucks, and it would get flown into space with KickSat, and then um, it would get a communication link. I can't remember what they ended up doing. It. Eventually, they tossed around a few different ideas. Whether it was a commu- communication link to the three U cubesat, or whether they were able to get um, communications from the individual sam size satellites to the ground, but either way, they they launched it last year, and successfully talked to these little satellites. So
0: Whoa, it's the awesome.
1: point where you know, with a little bit of cash, anyone could really fly something in space and explore space.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, and yeah, that's a huge.
0: Boss, I I heard some estimate like lowest is like forty thousand or something, which I mean (laughs) admittedly that's a lot of money, but like again, that's
1: it's not like
0: millions of dollars.
1: It's oh yeah. I think SpaceX is two thousand per kilogram. Really? So yeah, at their bulk launch cost. So if you could divide that up really efficiently and you really efficiently and you had like a I don't know, like a ten gram satellite or something. You know the costs are getting really low
0: once you do that. Yeah, that's that's crazy low. Yeah. Wow. Sure. That's that's that. That that just makes me so happy right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I'm glad. You know, with the with the pandemic, um, I was I was a little bit concerned about Space Month, but you know, I'm I'm glad we're we're going ahead with it because like I think I think it just gives us so much like hope and positivity. You know that you know th- things might be bad, but you know. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of, a lot of good and a lot of, a lot of great things to be happy about specifically in space.
1: Yeah, yeah and space space, space has brought us a lot of benefits that you mm-hmm. know we wouldn't have expected without it. and I think there's a lot of potential for it to continue to do so. mm-hmm Yeah and biased because that's what we're trying to do.
0: <laughs> yeah No, I can get as many players on the field as, as we can and that yeah. makes everyone much better.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of one of the big things I always advocate is like the more people that you have that are uh, have not only because education isn't the only thing that goes into if you're able to do something, it's being able to have access to the means to be able to carry out experimentation, to be able to get these cubesats out into space. Even if it's just a small thing the size of a stamp, it gets your foot in the door to be able to understand what you're going to be dealing with. So that way, it's not just Absolutely. an unknown; it's something that you can. Now have experience with and in a cost-effective yeah. way that everyone can afford.
1: In fact, we're so there's there there's CubeSats, which are the shoebox or tissue box size satellites, and then there's um, there's anywhere from that to the uh, the stamp satellites that I mentioned. Um, there's also a, something in between called a pocket cube, which is about fist sized. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway, we were planning on doing our initial iterations. In CubeSats, and then we started learning more about Pocket Cubes and realized there really wasn't a strong reason that we needed the entire CubeSat to do our, you know, to test the early versions of the system. Um, so then we started looking into Pocket Cubes. That the trick right now is the the number of launches for Pocket Cubes is still ramping up. There's only really about one per year.
0: So, really? That low?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Pocket Cubes. I mean. Um, before last year, only four had flown ever. Oh. So, yeah, really wow. new standard. Um, and now I think the numbers up to ten to fifteen, somewhere around there. And so, yeah, it, it's it's ramping up. There's really just one supplier, uh, Alba Orbital, that's launching them, and they're doing a great oh. job. Interesting. So, and ha-
0: tell tell us about more a little more about. Um, we got a question from all our listeners, but uh, just tell us more about. Like how are they deployed? So you have these small sats, and you know they're they're in the in the rocket, and the payload. Do they just fly out there, or is there like special deploying mechanisms? Like what what's involved in the to get these things in orbit?
1: So it depends on where they're being launched from. Um, but all cubes. The thing that's valuable about the standard is typically you can also standardize. Um, the dispenser that releases the satellites. So CubeSats have this standard dispenser um, that is either called a a pod or just a CubeSat dispenser. That's a little bit like a PEZ dispenser. So it's got a spring. It's this um, rectangular tube, and it's got a spring in the back that pushes the CubeSats out the tube when the door opens at the other end. Um, So, yeah, it's not a not a super complicated system, but a lot a lot more launch vehicles are providing it. Um, there are other um, there are other ways to release CubeSats and other satellites, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, SpaceX is doing really interesting stuff with having no deployer at all, which I think- They is just fantastic. go in
0: there and they just release to free roam satellites?
1: Free yeah, new... I mean, they just stack up 60 of these things and then they just let them spin off of the launch vehicle. Huh. And I guess they make them rugged enough that if they bump into each other, they're fine. Hmm. Um, yeah, if you, haven't, if you haven't looked up a Starlink satellite deployment, you've got to look them up there. It's crazy. Oh, stuff, yeah. 60 oh. of these things coming off of the Falcon 9.
0: <laughs> oh, it's like little babies it's coming down. <laughs>
1: oh. Another fun one to see is the... Um, The India PSLV launch that Planet did where they launched like 90 of their shoebox-sized satellites all from the same rocket. Oh. And that one, yeah, it's just like a pea shooter, just one after another, just this constant string of satellites coming out forever. Wow. (laughs) Pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, I was Um... kind of figuring that when they launch these things, it kind of has to have some sort of a strategy to get them deployed so they're not dumping into each other. And I'm not sure I'll... Uh, how complex these satellites, these cubesats, get if they have deployable, say, solar panels that come out uh, or anything like that, that
1: might make them more vulnerable to being bumped around. Yeah, and that's that's where I was mentioning with SpaceX. It seems that they've, I, I mean, they don't have some structure that's deploying them uh, separately. You know, for SpaceX, they seem to be just deploying them as a cluster, and it seems like they've made them rugged enough to withstand bumping into each other um other satellite other CubeSats and other satellites yeah that's definitely true they try and do very controlled release so that nothing's bumping into anything else
2: now is that just like a service that someone that's wanting to be able to launch satellites up that's something that they would consider as be like as far as like being able to choose a deployment company is like okay. This one here is cheaper because they just deploy it in mass, but we have a little bit more delicate system. It needs to be deployed in a very specific manner. Is that something that's going to come into play? You think in uh, satellite company launching
1: companies? Um. So right now, the the standard is for everything to be deployed in a very delicate way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think it would be great if a, if a launch provider or a a broker essentially um provided alternatives where it was cheaper because they didn't have the the mass and volume taken up by the dispenser but uh, i don't know of anyone that's really providing that it's, it's pretty novel that spacex is doing it but there are a lot of different launch companies um and if you want to put a satellite up like one of these cubesats you either talk to um the launch company itself some some broker their satellites directly or there's a lot of companies that um, all they do is uh, they're sort of the middleman. They help you find a, a launch provider to fly.
2: All right. Now, with us ramping up, how many uh, trips we're making to space to launch these small satellites? Does there start to become a point where there's an increased risk of these satellites hitting other previous launches of satellites that are already in orbit, or do are these things very carefully tracked for each and every satellite?
1: They are very carefully tracked, but there is still a risk. Um, there's a lot of satellites and a lot of debris in space. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, the uh, there this in the U.S. This is regulated by the uh, by the FCC. So when you try and apply for radio spectrum, you also have to prove to them you're not going to create debris. Oh, um, oh, the standards are pretty loose. So. You really just have to prove that you're not going to break up into a bunch of tiny pieces, and your satellite's life isn't going to be longer than 25 years, so it'll deorbit. Um, it'll start to go into the lower atmosphere and burn up okay. before 25 years is up.
0: Uh, isn't with small sats? Uh, I remember doing some reading on it. Isn't the the life only like 18 months unless you have a um, like a, a thruster on it? It's on the orbit. Okay, so So can you choose, or is there, like, you know, I I went, like, low-Earth orbit, I went middle-Earth orbit, like, so you can choose?
1: I mean, there's limitations, because usually um, these smaller satellites, like CubeSats, you're riding with some larger satellite that bought the rocket, and they dictate where that rocket goes. Oh. But um, there are, there are uh, coming up more opportunities for you to, sort of, have a little bit more say, because there's a lot of launch companies that are um, making progress on smaller launch vehicles where, uh, I mean, your cost will be higher, mm-hmm. but you may be able to rapidly put up a smaller satellite in whatever orbit you want. Like uh, there's Virgin Orbit, which is uh, the Virgin Group's uh, satellite launch company. There's a uh, rocket lab, which is already operational. Mm. Um, and there's quite a few others. That are working towards operation.
0: Wow, and like, what has been like a well, one of your biggest challenges as you've been developing the satellite and uh, you know get, raise well, trying to start out out there raising funding. Like, what's one of the biggest problems you've you've encountered so far?
1: So, like I said, we have a strong culture of uh, trying to iterate as quickly as we can hmm and um one of the one of the obstacles we think about a lot is just the the tools that are good but not quite good enough to mm-hmm. get there so you think about um like the process that goes into de- designing a circuit board for example mm-hmm. and there are a lot of complicated steps a lot of just bookkeeping things like that um keeping track of everything making sure everything's wired up properly Routing everything on the circuit board. So um, one one obstacle we thought a lot about is how do we how do we get through that process faster? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just in general, like the time it takes to get from a from a, an idea to working hardware or you know assembled hardware that we can test has always been difficult. Obviously, the price of launch is really difficult. If we could put something up quickly and at low cost, then we could iterate with higher fidelity earlier because we could mm-hmm. test in the space market itself. Um, so, yeah, and like you mentioned, that's tied to, to raising money, but I think that's not so much of an obstacle right now. We're we're not really at the point where we're any, anywhere close to twiddling our thumbs, wishing we right. had money, you know. Right. So there's a lot of work we can do.
0: Mm-hmm. And with such low cost, you, you have a pretty long runway.
1: Yeah, is... I, mean, I guess you could say our, our biggest challenge is, like, our team is really small. Mm-hmm. So things things are moving slower than we want, but um, we also feel pretty strongly about uh, trying to do um, trying to do with our team what software companies are starting to do with full cycle development, where um, each team member is sort of versed in the entire uh, technology stack. So, um, so essentially, in, like lean. In, so, um, probably the best way to describe it is there's there's three design met- or development methodologies that I know of. There's waterfall development, mm-hmm. where you lay out all the requirements of your system that you'd ever want, and then you pass that down to the people who um, come up with the system architecture, who pass it down to the people who come up with the subsystems, who pass it down. engineers who design the hardware who pass it down to the people who test it so you know you Mm -hmm. you have a very parallel development process um lean is where you do the same thing but in serial so the people who start who define those requirements only define a very the very minimal set of requirements and then they pass it down through the whole stack and then they can go back and iterate and add new requirements new features right right um the idea with full cycle is that in You're doing lean, but, um, you have everyone on your team knows how to do each of those layers, each of those steps. Mm -hmm. And so they, uh, they don't have to hand it down. Um, they don't have to hand off to anyone. They can, different members of the team can develop different features in parallel. That's really cool. That's so that go ahead. Sorry. No, I I, I, I didn't wasn't I was saying, but yeah, that's oh, yeah.
0: that's really cool. I haven't heard so of that. So
1: that's how Netflix does it. Um, they sort of pioneered the idea. It's called full cycle. Um, and in their case, they they pioneered it because they had a lot of cases where they have engineers sending something to deployment, and then there'd be an issue deploying it to their servers, and so it would go back to the engineers. who would have to tell the deployment engineers, deployment technicians, how to fix it. You know, so there's this really long process that slows down the iteration cycle. And right. if you have one person who knows how to design the circuit board, lay it out, get it manufactured, test it, um, who can also design the mechanical systems and get those manufactured, and in our case, the radar systems, then you're able to iterate a lot more quickly. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do, but it also involves a lot of learning. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, my, my teammate was a manufacturing engineer, really, really great at, build, you know, cutting anything out of metal that you could imagine. And uh, he has learned immense amounts of circuit development in the last several months. And that I've is been learning so cool. a of software and radar. So that, I mean, that slows us down, but my hope is that um, we'll have this higher exponential growth as we're able to iterate more quickly, as we develop a, a culture where we're doing this, doing yeah. the cycle where it doesn't impede iteration.
0: That's that's really cool. Um, one, one last question we should probably let you go. Um, like, what's one of your like highlights, uh, your favorite moments of the of the whole co-founder space startup like scene?
1: Um, the space scene in general, or just my experience starting.
0: Like, your your experience with the the startup, with the company, like, what what was, like, a highlight or a a hilarious experience you've had?
1: So, our science advisor has sort of been telling us that the satellites need to have this one feature Mm -hmm. that um, sort of forces them to be pretty big. And so he's been telling us that the antenna needs to be um, a certain size. So our solution to that was, well, we'll like pack the entire, you know, truck size satellite into the antenna. And so we've we've been talking to different people about how do we, you know, will you launch something that's not a CubeSat for us? That's actually just a flat panel Um, because then we get that large antenna, but then we don't have a ton of mass. Uh And uh, something that I'm really, that's has been kind of a crazy moment for me the last, you know, week or two, couple weeks has been um, toying with, all of the, the trade offs and equations that govern the the wind measurement system mm-hmm. and realizing that that fundamental assumption may not be true that we need that large antenna and that we may be able to do this really small um, so that's that's something that's really you know it's really exciting doing something that's at the edge like this because if i'm really doing due diligence on that trying to make sure do simulations and and mm-hmm. uh, modeling make sure that I haven't done something ridiculous that leads me astray. But um, that that's something really exciting, to be at the edge and figure out something that you know no one else realizes, mm-hmm. um, that no one yeah, else you're... has thought of. It It'd be really transformative.
0: Space is the final so... frontier, and you're, like, right on the edge. Like, that's that's just so cool, man. well
1: I to work, yeah.
0: I am so glad you'd be on here. Is there... Uh, So you have the website. Is there any other place, social media, anything else you want to plug?
1: Um, Yeah, you can follow us at at CareWeather on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We don't post a lot yet, but as we get moving forward, making more progress, we will.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll include a few links in the the, the description. Um, Also, a shout out to Nate for doing the, throwing together the YouTube video. Really appreciate that. Uh, Next, not this Saturday, but the Saturday after this one, we'll be interviewing um, a financial advisor for SpaceX. And it won't be about SpaceX stuff, but he's a complete and total space nerd. He uh, runs the Astronomical Returns, which is this awesome blog. You should check it out. Anyways, super excited for that. You guys will definitely want to tune in. And I I know I'm forgetting something. Yeah, just like, follow us. Uh, Thanks again for being on the show, Patrick. I really appreciate the work that you're doing, paving the way for a whole lot more amazing, fantastic breakthroughs and discoveries. Anyways, no matter where you guys are, whatever project you're working on, remember to keep things janky to the max.